At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. We're back with another Crime Estate podcast today. We've, uh, you know, it's summer, and so I haven't seen you guys every week, and I've really missed you. So I'm Heather, and I'm here with my co-host, Elena, and of course, our fabulous producer, Melanie, who always brings all the fun facts to the podcast. <laughs> I'm Hi. happy to see y'all again. Yeah. It feels like it's been forever, but it's only been a couple of weeks. I know. We, I mean, we text, you know, pretty much daily, but I actually haven't seen your pretty faces, so it's yeah. really nice to nice see to you in person. Together. So, Melanie, since the last time we recorded, I hear there is an update on the Murdoch case. Yes. uh, In the last day or two, the family of Mallory Beach, you know, the young lady who died in the boat crash, um, uh, she, uh, their family finally was able to announce a $15 million settlement with the convenience store company. And so, if you recall, this is the convenience store that the uh, Murdoch son had purchased the alcohol using his brother's fake ID. And this was the, you know, the fake ID that he was nothing like like uh, like him at the time. Um, and, you know, that happens. It, but the fact is that this convenience store company was uh, fighting it tooth and nail and really pushing back. And in their process of fighting it, they were actually trying to dig up dirt about uh, the Beach family. Oh, that's and, messed up. And so it, yeah. So it was completely like victim shaming and doing research like on, it was trying to deflect every single which way. Um, you know, you know, they were absolutely in the wrong. You know, that said, I mean, it's not unheard of for a store to sell alcohol to an underage person who then goes in, you know, kills someone. Um, and you need to kind of own up to it and take your lumps, especially mm-hmm. because this was a smaller convenience store chain in the low country. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, it it would have been better for them just to take their lumps and to kind of admit right. to it rather than fighting it and trying to gaslight and make people look bad. Um, so yeah, it, it's... Well, I'm sure they were trying to stop a precedent, right? Uh, you know, yes. for everything in the future. That was no, really... No, They're bigger concerns. And I'm not agreeing with this. I'm just saying from an analytical perspective, you know, you don't want this to be, you don't want this to be the precedent for all future cases. But the video of that was really bad. I mean, they had him very inebriated on tape going into that convenience store or maybe walking out. I remember the video of him walking out the dock. So, I mean, it was pretty bad. But, um, while I was in DC, I got to see several friends of mine that are friends of the podcast. Um, and so ja- shout out to my DC friends. Um, Hi, DC friends. Yes. And uh, did your your best friend, Emily D. Baker, have an update on the Myrtle you know this week? She has sent me some texts. I have not had time because I've actually been like working. I know, shocking. Um, but I've been working. But there has been some texts about, uh, you know, get on YouTube right now for an update in yeah. this case. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, so what else is going on out there? Anything with you ladies? Well, I've had fun over the last few weeks, you know, 
right now our podcast is a little bit new. It's a lot of, you know, friends and family. Mm -hmm. And it's been really fun as people have been traveling for the summer. I had a friend send me a picture from in front of the John Bonnet Ramsey house, which, you know, was our first episode. And then I had a friend go to New York and they were like, hey, I'm here by the Dorchester Towers, which was, uh, I don't know, I think episode four, five, six, something like that. So that's fun. So yeah, so so we really enjoy seeing those pictures. So if you guys are out traveling and in front of any of these houses, you should definitely let us know and send us a pic. Absolutely. Well, we have sort of an epic story for today's podcast. I am so excited about this one. Um, You know, it combines all of the elements that we love to chat about. You know, first, we have a house so iconic that it actually needed its own twin. And on top of that, you know, the fascinating story of one of of the fascinating story of one of America's most revered architects. And Elena, I mean, you and I do real estate all the time. I know of this person through, you know, architecture and history and this kind of thing, but I had no idea about this story. So if if you love real estate and you love true crime, this is maybe like the best story. Yay! You know, and, and this is maybe the best story uh, integrating the two that we've had mm-hmm. so far. So today we're going to tell you about Frank Lloyd Wright and his two great loves, Taliesin, the house he built in Spring Green, Wisconsin in 1911, and the story of the woman he considered his muse, Mama Cheney. Mama. I like that. I think that's right. Melanie, can you fact check me on the pronunciation of that? Because it's M-A-M-A-H. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> I'm going to call her Mama. I like it. I like it. Okay. Now, before we dive into the story, of course, you know, I love a little bit of background. Um, So in framing this background story, let me ask you all this. When you were pregnant with your kids, did you have a feeling for like the person they were going to be? Yes. I thought my oldest was going to be a girl. (laughs) Okay. He's very much boy, but he, he does have a sweet, sensitive side. So. And you didn't know? Was it a surprise? It was just, oh, well, no. I found out later in my pregnancy. So okay. at the time, and even up until I had hit him, I thought I was going to be a girl. It's definitely going to be a girl. Interesting. Okay. But you didn't have a feel for like what his character was going to be or like what his job would be or... No, no. Okay. Mm-mm. What about you, Melanie? I don't think so. I mean, you know, maybe I, you know, projected wishful thinking um, and, you know, basically everything that you expect is usually wrong. Yeah. Um, but no, not so much. I was convinced my son would be early. Three weeks early. I just knew it. As a matter of fact, my husband was supposed to be out of town the weekend he was born. I was like, it's too close. She can't go. And he was born that weekend. And I felt like he was going to go to Stanford. Oh. So no pressure. Right. Wow. On those job applications or college applications. So. It's so random. So so random. And very specific. Especially for not living anywhere near California. And not, like, I didn't go to any sort of Ivy League school. I mean, I don't know why I have Stanford on well, the brain. Do you think it could be because you grew up in the '90s in Say by the Bell? Talked about Stanford a lot. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just Maybe. saying. I mean, we we had a friend <laughs> that got married out um, in Palo Alto, like when I was super pregnant, mm-hmm. and so I don't know if that was just like ingrained. I was like, oh, this is gorgeous, and mm, I, th- I think that's probably yeah, yeah. wishful thinking. Like, yeah. wow. Well. So we're all sort of normal, except for me and our thinking about our children. Frank Lloyd's Wright's mom had very high expectations of him. And when his mother, Anne Lloyd Jones Wright, was pregnant with him, she told her friends that her child would be a boy and that he would be an architect. 
And she believed this so firmly that she painted cathedrals on his ceiling as inspiration. Wow. Right? Yeah. So originally born as Frank Lincoln Wright in 1867, his mother had cathedrals painted in his room. And she would also tear out pictures from Harper's Weekly and post them all over the walls of his room. She encouraged him to build with blocks designed by the guy who came up with the concept of kindergarten, a guy by the name of Frederick Froebel. And later in life, Wright went on to say that the Maplewood blocks are in my fingers to this day. It sort of blows my mind to think that, like, kids didn't grow up with blocks, but apparently this was a new concept Mm. at the time. So talk about manifesting his destiny. I mean— I think if you were to ask the average American to name one famous architect, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's pretty much what people would name. I mean, you don't even have to be a house or an architecture buff to, you know, know of him and to appreciate his um, architecture or to even kind of have gone on a home tour and go, this is like a Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired home, and, you know, acting like you know what you're talking about. No, I totally agree. I think he's definitely the name that comes to mind when you think about American architecture. So let's fast forward 17 years after Wright is born. The family's living in Madison, Wisconsin, and his father leaves the family and divorces his mother. In a show of solidarity with his mother, he changed his middle name to Lloyd, and he never saw his father again. Mm, That's sad. It is sad. Now, if you remember back to your American history class, the Great Chicago Fire occurred over 48 hours in October of 1871. When the fire... When the fire was eventually put out, it left one of three residents of Chicago homeless. Wow. That reminds me of that balloon framing we talked about in the Villisca, Iowa. Yeah. So if you all haven't listened to that episode, what we were saying was that, you know, the way we frame houses now to be fire resistant or to keep fire Mm -hmm. from spreading has changed so much. And a lot of that is because of things we learned in these huge fires where homes and businesses were just engulfed. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So I bring this up because with so much of the city destroyed, architects and builders started flocking to Chicago. You know, the town had the money to rebuild, and these men saw it as a place to really make their mark. So at 20 years old, Frank pawns his father's clothes to put together enough money to go to Chicago. And it's there that he approaches the best architect in the city, Louis Sullivan, and asks for a job. Now, Sullivan goes on to design one of the very first skyscrapers, and Wright was referred to by Sullivan as the good pencil in the master's hand. Hmm. And so over the years, Wright really goes on to become Sullivan's main draftsman. Now, not long after moving to Chicago, Wright meets Catherine Lee Tobin, who from here on out, we shall refer to as Kitty. And Kitty is from a wealthy Chicago family with a firm place in Chicago society. Two years after they first meet, they are married. But as you might expect, neither of the... Neither of their parents were really happy about them getting married. Her parents said he was too poor, too unconventional, and too young. So to combat these concerns, Wright goes to his boss, Mr. Sullivan, and he talks to him, and he talks him into giving him a five-year contract on his job and a loan against that contract so that he could build a respectable house in the even more respectable neighborhood of Oak Park in Chicago. Now, Oak Park is immediately west of downtown Chicago. And Elena, think about that. Just that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not humility, but like uh, the balls. <laughs> so what do I want to say? <laughs> yeah. Think about the, uh, the gumption. Yes, okay. the gumption. So Elena, think about the gumption it took to go to your boss and say, mm-hmm. okay, 
I know I'm your main guy. I want a five-year contract at, you know, $100,000 a year or whatever it is. And also, I want you to give me a loan against that $500,000. Right. I mean... Good for him. I mean, good for him. It's yeah. confidence. Sort of knew his worth. In now, Oak Park, that's still a wealthy neighborhood, isn't it? I don't know a lot about Chicago. Melanie, do you? Yeah, I mean... Well, I don't know a lot about it. I've been there a handful of times. So, no, I think it's uh, really nice. Anything in the inside the loop, you know, kind of closer mm. to the downtown. But, um, you know, where do the Obamas live? What neighborhood is that? Do we know? I do not know off the oh, top of my head. Thank mm. I mean, you, you, quick, you asked me a question. Google, sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, Oak Park, it—, it Generally, Chicago is known for a lot of this turn of the century, beautiful, restored beautiful. homes. Love yeah. Chicago. Like my neighborhood, like those four squares, there's lots of them in the Chicago area. Okay. All right. So the house he builds here in Oak Park is not the center of our story, but you know we can't not tell you a little bit about it, right? So Frank Kitty and their six children, four boys and two girls, go on to live in this house for two decades. And as you might imagine, the home he built with all of these incredible features was really sort of beyond his means at the time. Wright is quoted as saying, so long as we have the luxuries, the necessities can take care of themselves. That's funny. I mean, it is funny. <laughs> I mean, that's a good one. I wish my husband believed that. I don't think <laughs> Husbands, are you listening? I, I don't think this is the standard. <laughs> we'll have the gold chandelier and the food will just appear on the yeah. table. It'll be fine. So, you know, it's really unclear if Wright's next venture is the result of him, you know, living beyond his means or just living to do what he wants and when he wants. But shortly after building their home in Oak Park, Wright starts designing luxury homes for other residents in the neighborhood. And while he was doing this on his own time and not while at work for Mr. Sullivan, Sullivan really considered it a breach of contract. Man. And he fired Frank Lloyd Wright in 1893. Though, as you might imagine, the story that Wright tells about how that went is a little bit different. So what does he do after getting fired? He adds a studio to his own home and starts his own practice. The homes that Wright was designing can be categorized as prairie houses. And between 1900 and 1909, he designed 135 prairie houses in and around the Chicago suburbs. Wow. But his reach extended well beyond the Midwest. Over his career, he's credited with building some of the most innovative spaces in the United States. Frank Lloyd Wright's most famous works include the Guggenheim Museum in New York, the striking Falling Water in Mill Run, Pennsylvania, Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona, that's the twin, Hollyhock House in Los Angeles, California, Roby House and the Illinois Unity Temple in Oak Park, Illinois, and the Tokyo Imperial Hotel in Japan, and of course, the famous Blade Runner featured Ennis House. But let's go back to his start in Oak Park and the original home style that he developed that really cemented his style and legacy. What did these houses have in common in terms of architectural style and function? They were sort of the original open concept homes. You know, they had this unified whole. He wanted order out of chaos. He thought that houses weren't supposed to be boxes beside of boxes, but everything should be open and flowing, which was really a revolutionary idea at the time. And if you think about, Alana, like late 1800s, a lot of the houses you would walk into like a big foyer and they would have the boxes of rooms. So to your you know, left would be the dining room and it was mm -hmm. its own box. And then it would open to a kitchen, but it was its own box. And then there would be the formal sitting room and another living room. And so every room 
was its own square right. and closed off. And so Frank Lloyd Wright really wanted to have more of a flow to a home, which today seems just sort of standard, but was really a novel idea right. when he um, started designing those. And while most architects will stop at the design of the house itself, Wright was notorious for also designing the furnishings and accessories down to the napkin rings. He told one client that all of his family's furnishings were prehistoric and had to go. Can you imagine oh going gosh. into a house you were staging and be like, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is all prehistoric. <laughs> I think we're a little more uh, subtle. Delicate. Yeah. Delicate. Yes. That's the better yes. word. That's right. And he went so far as to once design the gown that a hostess was going to wear to the first party in her new home. The hostess had rearranged the furniture that Wright had designed before the party, and when he arrived, he moved it all back to where he wanted it to be. Dang. Well, eccentric. Very yes. eccentric. Yeah. I love I it. I think we should start doing that at clients' houses. We should just go over, <laughs> and they invite us to dinner, and we're like, no, no, no. This furniture's all wrong. And this is what you will wear. <laughs> So if you think he's been a little eccentric up until now, wait until you hear what happens next. Sometime around 1908, Wright was commissioned by Edwin and Mama Cheney to design a home for them in Oak Park. Mama was very well educated for her time with a BA and MA from the University of Michigan and later worked as a translator of feminist and later worked as a translator of feminist European writings. During the course of working together, Wright and Mama Cheney fell in love and began to have an affair. I know. And, you know, this might not have been so scandalous if they both didn't decide to leave their families. So Wright leaves his six kids with Kitty, and Mama leaves her two young children with her husband, Edwin. And in 1909, in an effort to let the scandal of their affair die down, the two moved to Europe. Yeah, that's interesting because his father did the same thing, and he changed his name and didn't forgive him, and now he's doing it? Yeah, it's like history repeating itself, almost, absolutely. Dirty circle. So while they're in Europe, Atlanta, Frank essentially abandons his architecture practice. I mean, you know, he can't design homes in the United States from Europe. Virtual (laughs) virtual computers didn't work back then, (laughs) yeah. Um, And so he sets about writing two books highlighting his life's work. And so during this time, he starts asking Kitty for a divorce, and she refuses. So after a year or so in Europe, Wright and Mama returned to the United States, where Wright's mom had purchased a piece of land for them in Spring Green, Wisconsin, near where she grew up as a child. The mom purchased it for him and his mistress. Mistress. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Yep. Um, so, you know, despite their time in Europe letting, like, the scandal die down, the country is still, like, just horrified by this affair. And his neighbors in Spring Green actually request that the police evict him wow. and Mama from their home so that they don't have to live next to such moral corruption. Dang. You know, right? Yeah. It was a different time, for sure. Can you imagine asking the police to evict your neighbors no, for having an affair? crazy. So Wright defiantly calls a press conference on Christmas Day, 1911. And in explaining himself, he says that, quote, The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. But he was not ordinary. Wow. So he is like the ego, an eccentric little egomaniac. (laughs) Yeah. Despite the fact that he's still married to Kitty, who continues to deny his request for a divorce, and the fact that the neighbors are scandalized, Wright goes on to build a home for himself and Mama in Spring Green, and he calls it Taliesin, which in Welsh means shining brow. 
His concept for this house was that the architecture should be organic to the land and complement the land instead of dominating it, which I sort of love. Um, an excerpt from the Frank Lloyd Wright Trust website describes this best. It says, The rolling topography of southern Wisconsin allowed Wright to expand upon his earlier experiments linking site and structure. Here, Wright responded to the natural landscape by building Taliesin around a hilltop. The architect wrote, I knew well that no house should ever be on a hill or on anything. It should be of the hill, belonging to it. Hill and home should live together, each the happier. So now you'll have to go to our website and see pictures of Taliesin. The way the house blends into the hill really is a work of art. Have either of you ever been there? No. No. It's on my list. I, I really want to go. Yeah. Well, my husband's been wanting to go to a bunch of these golf courses in Wisconsin. There you so, go. So it could be a win-win. There you go. So the current iteration of the home is 21,000 square feet, and it has 524 windows throughout, which allows it to not only have views from the hillside, but also of the courtyards and gardens designed throughout the estate. You know, I say the current iteration because in August of 1914, a terrible tragedy occurs at Taliesin that really forces Wright to recreate his mm. life's work. So let me tell you a little bit about how the house looked in 1914. Wright worked with a local farmer, and, and he wanted local farmers and local materials to design this 12,000-square-foot home that he described as low, wide, and snug. So Taliesin features like many architectural elements that became Wright's trademarks. It has the cantilever, cantilever roofs. It has wide windows, an open floor plan that was designed to allow in natural light in every room of the house all times of day. And his use of like natural and local materials was an effort to integrate the home into its surroundings. And as eccentric as he is, like I love this concept of designing a home to feel organic to its space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the quote about being on the hillside sounded really beautiful. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of like, you know, if you go to Colorado and you're up in the mountains, like you don't want to see this steel structure yeah. in the mountains, right? You want to feel the rocks and the nature and the mm -hmm. wood and make it feel organic to its space. Mm -hmm. so I love that. And Wright was a big fan of Japanese culture too, and you know, obviously Jap Japanese architecture as well. So he ended so he incorporated an artificial lake stocked with fish and aquatic fowl, a water garden, as well as a tea circle in the middle of the spacious green courtyard. Due to the scandalous aspect of their relationship, locals and media dubbed Taliesin the love cottage. 12,000 square foot cottage. Right. But <laughs> yeah. I, I like the fact also that, you know, in the early 1900s, he was a celebrity. Like, it, you know, for an architect, it is pretty interesting that it's not that he's just appreciated now in hindsight. He was appreciated at the time. And this was still pretty early in his career. He goes on to have a much longer career. And so the fact that it's still big enough that the media is talking about this. It's kind of fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. yeah There's totally no TikTok. Did. Yeah. He wasn't on TikTok showing his <laughs> dancing <laughs> skills around his architecture. Yeah. It's like your friend on TikTok, Melanie. We'll have to come back to that later. Oh. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So three years after being back stateside, the country is like willing to sort of start overlooking the scandalous affair. And Wright begins to be hired again. And that's why Wright is in Chicago on the fateful day of August 15th, which starts out just like any other. 
At lunchtime, Mama and her two children, John, who's 11, and Martha, who's 9, sat down to eat on the porch outside of the dining room. Inside, eating together were five employees who were working on the property at the time. They included the Taliesin foreman, Thomas Brunker, carpenter Billy Weston, and his 13-year-old son, Ernest, draftsman Herbert Fritz, and Emile Brodell, and landscape designer David Lindblom, all of him sat together in the dining room just inside the house. Also working on the property at the time were Julian Carlton and his wife Gertrude, who were working as a butler slash handyman and a cook for the family. And it's unclear exactly what caused the crime, even all these years later. But we know that something happened that morning that caused Mama to send Wright a telegram that said, Come as quickly as you can. Something terrible has happened. As the family and workers were finishing lunch, Carlton, the butler slash handyman, goes into the dining room and asks the foreman if he can get gasoline in order to clean a rug. He's granted permission to do so, and so he leaves the room, and he locks all but one of the dining room doors on his way out. He comes back with the can of gasoline and an axe. He then kills Mama and her children on the porch using the axe and then proceeds to pour gasoline under the dining room doors and alongside the outside of the walls of the house and lights the house on fire. Now, remember, he had locked all but one of the doors to the dining room. So as the workers realized that the room was on fire and tried to escape, they only had one exit. And Carlton was standing at that exit with an axe, ready to murder anyone that came through the wow. door. Wow, Crazy, right? That's nuts. Yeah. And also, that's a lot of people working on your property. Right. I mean, this is a big property. That's true. I, okay, so first of all, he asked for gasoline to clean the rug. Maybe that's a I, like was a tried and true method I'm in the early 1900s. It was just because I read a couple articles and they all seemed to act like it was a normal thing. Normal thing. And then, but and then also, I was thinking the telegram, or that takes a while, I guess, to get to the recipient, and so something had to have been yeah. going on before all of that. Yeah, I think we'll get get oh, to some of that. Okay. Well, I think so, there's we don't know for a fact, but there's some theories about like, okay, sorry. why. Okay, jumping yeah. ahead. Okay. That's all right. I love it. I love the questions, Elena. Okay. Of the nine people dining at Taliesin that day, seven were killed. Herbert Fritz was able to escape through a window before Carlton noticed, and he ran to a neighbor's house to contact the authorities. And William Weston was hit by Carlton, and Carlton thought he was dead but he actually wasn't. So Wright arrives home from Chicago that evening based on the telegram that he receives to find the love of his life murdered and really the culmination of his life's work up to this point destroyed by a fire. Through his grief, he sets out to resurrect Taliesin, much of which had been destroyed by the fire. Wright goes on to say that Taliesin should live to show something more for its mortal sacrifice than a charred and terrible ruin on a lonely hillside in the beloved valley. In one of his autobiographies, he says that there's a release from anguish in action. Anguish would not leave Taliesin until action for renewal began. Again and all at once, all that had been in motion before at the will of the architect was set in motion. Steadily, again, stone by stone, board by board, Taliesin II began to rise from Taliesin I. In building Taliesin II, he added a stone-floored room called the Logia from which he could see the family chapel. And by the end of that year, the resident wing of the estate had been rebuilt and Wright had a new girlfriend, a woman who had written him a letter of condolence. I Sorry, can I stop again? Yeah. I was going to give him the benefit of the doubt because that paragraph we just wrote 
or you just read from his autobiography sounded very egotistical. But now he has a girlfriend already? It, you thought it sounded egotistical? I did. Because he talked, uh, just in that paragraph, I've not read his autobiography, but he wanted to make, he talked about the house and how, helping the house rise from its ashes and nothing else beyond that. In that one paragraph, at least. I get you. I get you. I see what you're saying. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm bringing yeah. too much into it. No, I think I think he had a way with words, for sure. The motive for this crime remains unclear until this day. Carlton was quickly apprehended by the police, who found him in the basement of Taliesin, taking what they thought was a lethal dose of acid. He was arrested but never stood trial as he died seven weeks later of starvation. Some believe that he simply went crazy. Some believe that the crime was committed in retaliation for either a racist slur by one of the workers— John was from Barbados, or because he was about to be fired, and yet other believes that this was others believe that this was poetic justice given the scandalous affair. Carlton's wife Gertrude testified that her husband had recently grown agitated and paranoid, and that the two of them were even supposed to go to Chicago to look for new work. Regardless of why the crime occurred, the tragedy went on to keep the story of Frank Lloyd Wright and Mamma Cheney's affair in the public eye. By the end of 1914, the residential wing of the estate was rebuilt, and by the end of the year, Wright had proclaimed his love for another woman who had penned him that condolence letter. The two would wed in 1923 after Kitty finally agreed to a divorce. And two years before Wright's estate caught fire for the second time, this time believed to be due to faulty electrical wiring and the two new telephone lines that had been installed. This time, Wright's bedroom and the living quarters were destroyed, and Wright says, Taught by the building of Taliesin 1 and 2, I made 40 sheets of pencil studies for the building of Taliesin 3. Taliesin's radiant brow should come forth and shine again with a serenity unknown before. And today, Taliesin stands as a national historic landmark. Okay, so let's chat about Taliesin for a second. You know, yes, it's listed as a national historic landmark. It can be toured by the public at this point. And until his death in 1959, if you're doing the math, he lived until 91, Taliesin was Wright's eastern headquarters. But during winter months, he would stay at Taliesin West, another home he built for himself in Scottsdale, Arizona. But he really considered Wisconsin his true home because if you remember, like, back to the beginning, we were talking about that's where his mom's family grew up. Mm -hmm. um, it's It was quote-unquote home. And I get that. I mean, my family grew up in Kentucky, and I still sort of consider the farm, like, home, even though we've lived in Dallas 25 years. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just where his mom was from. And I think the predominance of his um, homes that he has built, the architecture, is in the Midwest. Um, they're not all um, uh, here by any means. Obviously, there's one in Tokyo. But it, it's definitely kind of like the first great, you know, kind of famous American architect um, so, yeah, so Frank Lloyd Wright, I had to fact-check myself. He had only one Dallas residential project, and it was a home that was he designed in 1950, um, but it wasn't actually built into 1958. And it's called the Jillian House, the John Jillian House. Um, what part of Dallas is it in? It is Preston Hollow. Okay. And so it's actually only a um, mile or two from our kids' uh, um, public school. 
and I have dr- drove outside of it be, I, because um, we did an amazing race party for school at that West, the West Amazing Race Party mm-hmm. on the West Side of Dallas. And one of the things that we had to do in the Amazing Race was to go outside this home and take a picture of it. So we drove outside of it and we're taking a picture of it. But to kind of pull it full circle to movies, because, you know, we talk a lot about movies as well. Um, and, you know, my my kids passion for movies. His favorite director is Wes Anderson. And so Wes Anderson filmed um, Bottle Rocket, which is one of uh, the first movies with the the Wilson brothers um, inside this house. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, well, and for those not super familiar with Dallas neighborhoods, Preston Hollow is a very elite neighborhood. It is, uh, homes are on bigger lots, you know, sprawling mansions, and it would be home to um, the Bush family currently. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's a. But if you look at the pictures of the house, it looks like a nineteen, like you know, a nineteen fifties uh, Frank Lloyd Wright style house. If that makes sense, because some of his houses were a little bit more nineteen thirties. This okay. one was probably you know one of the later um, um, projects that he did since he died. I think what we say in fifty nine, fifty nine. Yeah, you know, and I have this theory. About, I mean, like him or hate him, Frank Lloyd Wright was a genius, right? And I have this theory about just genius in general that oftentimes they aren't people that you really like. Like I think about um, Steve Jobs. Have you all ever read his biography? Mm -mm, It is fascinating, but you will hate him at the end of it. But he was just so driven and everything was about his vision and, you know, the things that the rest of us think are important, our kids, our family, being decent humans, um, really didn't impact because it all got, all of that got in the way of the vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So, I don't Probably. know, maybe somebody will prove me wrong. Maybe that's pessimistic, but I feel like that's what I have experienced. That makes sense. Well, if you're interested in learning more about Frank Lloyd Wright and um, Mama Cheney, um, there's been a couple of books, but there was, I think, a 2007 book called Loving Frank that actually kind of delved into their affair and uh, the sad story. Yeah. Think about that at the time, too. Like, she left her children. Yeah. That's, I mean, sort of unheard of now, Mm -hmm. but back then, that's sort of crazy. Yeah, I think I, uh, I read an article later on. So, so yeah, she left the, her children and then somehow or another she either got them back or got partial custody later on. So that's why they were at the house. That's right. That she had partial custody in the summers. And that um, Frank Lloyd Wright, because, you know, he had been in Chicago, had to take a train after hearing about this uh, disaster um, back to Wisconsin. And um uh, Mama Chania's first husband, um, uh, who was the father of these children, was on the same train with him as he goes to collect his children's bodies. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. I, I like, I think it's interesting too, the bit you were saying about the neighbors complaining to get them. I'm like, that's a really good marketing plan. Like, we could capitalize on that if you were still able to do that. <laughs> I, we will help Need you. to sell your house? Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> need to get your, your neighbors are adulterers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's uh, hilarious. You be always uh, marketing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I think we obviously need another field trip to um, to both. I think we should do Taliesin and Taliesin West. Uh, let's do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So it's a little bit unusual for this property, but of course, we have to circle back to, would you live there? Would you list it? What about you, Alana? Um, only because of how iconic it is, I think I would do all. And I usually don't, but I think I would live there. I'd buy it. I'd list it, all this stuff. Yeah. What about you, Melanie? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, definitely. Mm -hmm. She Um, totally would. But also, this house has been renovated. Remember, there's been uh, two fires. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the house that exists today is uh, um, probably in the same vein of what he designed, you know, but conceptual, but it's been changed a lot. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, yes, yes, yes to all. I would live there. I would list it. I would stay there on vacation. I would rent it. I would, yeah, yeah, all the things. Yeah. Yeah. My husband said, like, he went to a um, music festival one time in the summer in Wisconsin. And he's like, it was the nice summer day that he had ever experienced. He was like, he was like, it's everything you would want in a summer day, warm, but not hot, sunny, like, you know, the lake water nearby. Sounds amazing as we're going through a 110 degree heat wave here. Ridiculous. All right, Alana, what do you have coming up next week? Anything uh, exciting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting. It's a story I first heard about in fourth grade. What? what? Yeah. Wow. Yes. What, fourth grade. you were a true crime aficionado yes. in fourth grade? <laughs> a little baby, yes. a baby crime yes, junkie. I, I found it in the book, and uh, it's, it's a it, there's a book based on the crime, and I found it in like a stack of my dad's books. I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. So yeah, first read in fourth grade. I'm excited to talk about it. Okay. Uh, 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 wow, that's it. That's a good tease. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, we hope you love today's episode and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details for today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.